In the August 28, 2020 New York Times article, God is dead, so is the office. These people want to save both. We're told of divinity consultants who are making inroads into corporate America as they seek to care for the spiritual flourishing of the office worker. So we're told, of course, following after Friedrich Nietzsche, that God is dead. God's no longer around, yet we're still spiritual beings. So we need care for our souls. And that care has been found in corporate America. It's been found in the office. There are rituals and rhythms of life. There's community there. But with COVID-19, the office workers were sent home. So now God is dead. The office is dead. What do we do? Well, these divinity consultants, these individuals with master's degrees in theology from different seminaries across America are providing rituals for entering a Zoom call, leaving a Zoom call, celebrating success when you get the sale and mourning when you lose it. They have as their aim the cultivation of community in the church of corporate America when that church can't meet. But the author of the article points out one significant problem. That kind of community in the church of corporate America is a little bit disingenuous when you can still get fired. When your employer can still send you home, the meaningful community is no longer very meaningful. Here, corporate America and these divinity consultants fall short of God's plan for the church. But it makes us ask, why is it that individuals can think that the church can be replaced in the corporate world simply with the cultivation of community and the institution of a few routines, a few meaning structures? I think that people can be so convinced that the corporate church in America can replace the actual assembly of God's people because over the years, churches have gotten off mission. They've started to veer away from God's plan for the church. They've started to lose sight of God's desire for his people as a gathered assembly. I think that most of us here would affirm that as a church, we ought to be involved in gospel ministry. That's why we're here. That's our vision. That's our purpose. But I think as we look at the history of the church in America, you see churches slowly creeping away from that mission. It becomes replaced with secondary things, some good things, but eventually it boils down to, we're just here for some vague sense of community to share in some vague sense of spirituality. And whatever's true for you is great. Let's just welcome one another. When that is the guiding principle for the local church, it becomes no better than any nonprofit doing something good in the world. And it does no better than an office that has a really good employee environment. So what is it that will bring life to the church? It's being on mission for God. It's shaping our life as an assembly according to God's blueprint. And in the book of Titus, Paul provides for us something of a vision for gospel ministry. And it's this vision that we have to catch. It's this vision that we as an assembly have to be about. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves no better than any other nonprofit, offering nothing more significant than what you could find at a local 
charity, and nothing better than the community you'd find at your office. So Paul is writing to Titus. He sent him on a mission to strengthen churches. And in his opening to the letter, he lays out a vision for gospel ministry that will be fleshed out in the rest of the letter that he wants to pass on to Titus so that Titus can then pass it on to the churches. And this gospel ministry boils down to a focus on maturing the faith of God's people with an aim of teaching the truth that leads to godliness. All of this then is motivated by the unwavering hope in God for eternal life. And it's accomplished by means of preaching and proclaiming the message of the gospel. We'll consider each of these points in turn. But as you turn to the letter to Titus, we need to grasp a little bit of the background. Paul opens his letter here identifying himself as he does in almost every letter. In almost every letter you look at Paul's, he begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ or something like that. And here in Titus 1.1, he begins with the identification, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle for Jesus Christ or an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you've read the other letters of Paul, you'll notice that he deviates a little bit by identifying himself as a servant of God rather than as a servant of Jesus Christ. But I think the same idea is there. He is a servant of the true God, this true savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as you look at this phrase, Paul, a servant of God, we need to distinguish between the word servant that we've discussed in recent weeks as we've talked about the office of the deacon, the office of the servant with a capital S there. Paul is using a word here that's probably better rendered slave. And depending on the translation that you have before you, there might be a footnote saying, this is the word for slave, or maybe that's actually what your translation renders it. We sometimes in America want to avoid this idea of communicating the slavery that our country experienced and propagated. The slavery of the ancient world was far different, but if anyone pops open their Bible and starts reading about slavery, it's the, the race-based slavery that was in America and other places that probably comes to mind. So many Bible translations render this just servant, and that maybe gives an idea that's different. But what Paul is trying to communicate is that he was once a slave to sin, even as he thought he was a slave to God on mission for God. But in his conversion, he now transferred ownership. God is his owner now. He's a slave to God. He owes his submission and obligation to God. God is who he's serving. That's the idea that he's trying to communicate from the very beginning. So Paul, a servant of God, but then Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who has been sent as a delegate for Christ, sent bearing Christ's authority with the message of Christ to all people. So it is this individual who's writing to Titus. It's this identity that he carries forward, an identity of authority as a re representative of Christ, but then an identity as a slave, as a servant, as one who does not have his own agenda here for these churches, but one who carries God's agenda for the churches. So we have the author, Paul. But then in verse four, we're introduced to the recipient. 
He writes to Titus, my true son in our common faith. We'll talk about Titus more and Titus's mission that Paul is sending him on next week on the island of Crete. But Paul addresses Titus in terms of my son, my true son in the common faith. Now, this is just a term of endearment showing this relationship, the shared relationship between Paul and Titus. Perhaps Paul had some role in Titus's conversion. In the same way, perhaps that, that Paul mentored Timothy, perhaps Paul mentored Titus, and there was this level of familiarity there. But what Paul is doing is he's referencing Titus in terms of their shared faith in Jesus Christ, in terms of their shared experience of faith, or they put their personal faith and trust in Christ, but also in terms of the content of that faith. They share in the core tenets of the Christian teaching, and they want to bring that teaching to the church. So Paul's writing, older apostle, writing to younger man, likely, who he's discipled and mentored, Titus. They share unity in the common faith. Then he goes on to express that benediction or that blessing that's so common, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This blessing arises out of that shared faith. It can only be given to those who are in Christ because without Christ, we stand before God without peace. And we are not recipients of grace. We receive grace through Christ and we come before God in peace and we have peace with God only through Christ Jesus, our Savior. So the occasion for this gospel vision this vision for gospel ministry is this letter to Titus. And in this opening, we have our author, we have our recipient, and it's actually all one sentence from start to finish there. In between the identification of the author and recipient is sandwiched a wealth of vision for gospel ministry. And that's what we're going to look at here. That's what Paul will flesh out in the rest of the letter. He'll apply these, these basic tenets of gospel ministry to the church in their leadership, in their structure, in their relationship to one another, in their relationship to the world. But it's all jam-packed in between the identification of the author and the recipient. So let's turn our attention then to this vision for gospel ministry. First, in the vision for gospel ministry, we see the focus of gospel ministry. And it's on the faith of God's elect. The faith of God's elect. This notion of faith appears throughout the letter. It's one of the key ideas in this letter. In such a short letter, it, Paul references faith at least six times. And he's trying to drive forward the importance of both our confession of faith that is our dependence on Christ for peace with God, but also the content of faith. And both of these things are going to come out in this vision for gospel ministry. Now to speak of God's people, these faithful, those who have faith as God's elect is not new to Paul at all. To speak of those who are God's people is those chosen by God places the church in continuity with all of those that God has related to with mercy and grace throughout time. So we think back to the Old Testament with the call of Abraham. He was chosen by 
God, called out from the rest of his family on a mission of obedience to God. And then we press forward to the ancient Israelites. And we think in terms of God's electing grace on them. Paul descri- or God describes this in Deuteronomy where he tells them, I chose you. And not because you've done anything, not because you're powerful, not because you're impressive, but because I love you and I will redeem you and I will make you my people. So here Paul ties the church into this picture of God's electing grace to people throughout the ages. This idea of God's election can sometimes baffle us, can't it? It's challenging for us to understand how is it that God chooses me, yet I have an experience of choosing him. And we look at this and say, it's by God's grace. He gives us faith and he has sent now Paul in this time as an apostle for that very faith, for the faith of God's elect, for the faith of God's chosen one. So we might ask then, who is God's elect? If they're the elect of God, who is God's elect? There are two groups or categories of people who I think we should understand as God's elect. The first category is the group who has expressed faith in Christ and thereby identify as God's elect. The second group are individuals who have not yet come to faith in Christ and have no concept of God's electing grace, much less a concept of God's grace at all. In the first group are those who have come to share in the faith putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, coming to affirm the content, the teaching of that faith, that doctrine that Christians believe. Paul's primary ministry that he's passing on to Titus is for that group of people. That's the first group of people he hits. Those who have expressed faith in Christ, I am on mission for them, you are on mission for them, be the church for the faith of God's elect. He wants Titus, as we'll see next week, to bolster that faith with proper teaching, bolster it with developing church structure, bolster it with teaching them how to apply the faith to their life. Very immediately then, if we're thinking in terms of Paul's vision for gospel ministry, we understand that the message of the gospel is for believers, for those who have already expressed faith in Christ. We sometimes deceive ourselves into thinking that the gospel is the good news that brings us into the family of God, and then it's over. But if Paul's vision for gospel ministry is for the faith of God's elect, it means that the gospel has ongoing ramifications for all of God's elect, including those who have expressed faith in Christ. As we get into this letter, we're going to identify how the gospel actually continues to transform believers. So it's not just a message that gets us into God's people. It's the message that keeps us there and transform us to look more and more like Christ as we wait for his return. So then when Paul's talking about the faith of God's elect, he's talking on the one hand about those who who know they're God's elect because they have responded to God in faith. 
But then he's also talking about those who have no idea what it means to be God's people. We believe that God still has more who he will bring to faith. So we think in terms that God has elected people to salvation and we don't know who they are until they come to him in faith. In this way, the doctrine of God's electing grace serves as a motivation and encouragement for spreading the gospel to all people. This was Paul's encouragement as he went across the known world to share the gospel with pagans. In fact, we read in Acts where Paul went to a city and everyone rejected him. And he thought, I need to leave. But God spoke to him and said, don't go for I have many in this city. In other words, there are many who I have chosen who will come to faith, persevere in your evangelistic ministry. So in this vision for gospel ministry that Paul is passing to Titus, and we as recipients of that same letter carry forward now, have a responsibility to share the gospel with God's elect. And because we don't have God's knowledge, we should treat every individual we encounter as one of God's people who he wants to see come to faith. So if ever you hear someone talking about the doctrine of election as a reason not to share the gospel, tell them they're misguided, okay? Don't, don't allow our challenges of trying to work out how God's electing grace and man's responsibility work together, lead us away from sharing God's message of the gospel, allow, us, allow it to encourage us to do that all the more, knowing that there are people who will receive the gospel, not because we are so charismatic and dynamic and winsome and beautiful people, but because God has chosen them. And because we, as responsible Christians, read biographies, we know that there are individuals who go most of their life running from God who look like they will never come to God, yet God in his mercy chose them. And because of the persistent means of the spreading of the gospel, they came to faith in him. So as we encounter individuals in our families, in our lives, in our workplaces, in this city, who appear to hate God, they do. But God may be at work to draw them to himself. And so we carry this mantle forward, this mission of a focus on the faith of God's elect in our gospel ministry. This ought to define our assembly. Paul moves on then to build on this and to narrow in with the aim of gospel ministry, which is the knowledge of the truth the knowledge of the truth. So he continues on. He's a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and for the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the lives of God's elect. So his gospel ministry had at its aim the funneling of that faith forward into the content of the faith by teaching so that there would be an increasing knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Here we just understand Christians are learning, thinking people. We have to grow in the knowledge of the truth. We don't passively enter into greater knowledge. That's not how God made our brains. God made us thinking creatures 
And he gave us a responsibility to grow in the knowledge of the truth. And he gave churches the responsibility to teach the knowledge of the truth. And so we must work hard to think carefully about the Christian faith and to grow in our knowledge of the truth and really our knowledge of the gospel. So God's elect then don't get a pass into passively walking through the Christian life. I think this is perhaps evidenced by the fact that God does not give us all the full vision of what our lives ought to look like. He gives us his word that was written in a language with grammatical constructs and deep theology that requires careful application and thinking and teaching. And so as an assembly, we must work hard to grow in the knowledge of the truth, but we can't stop there. It's the truth that leads to godliness. So the church does not gather on a Sunday morning to equip themselves for Bible trivia night. We gather on Sunday morning to grow in the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, such that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the content of our faith, hits our affections, what we love, and it changes it so that we express ourselves rightly in this world, so that we do not chase after lesser loves or disordered loves in idolatry, but we chase after our love of God in Christ Jesus. We gather to grow in the knowledge of the truth that we find in the scripture so that we know how to live our lives. We look at the scriptures as the script that we live our lives by. So we take the truth and we put ourselves in God's story and we perform on the stage of the world what it is to be a Christian living in godliness. You might sometimes wonder why it is that so many Christians, ourselves included, live according to the stories of this world. We envision the good life based on the stories of this world. We think about the consequences to our actions only in terms of what we see in this world. And I think at the root of that problem is that we often fail to apply ourselves to grow in knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and to do so so carefully and prayerfully and thoughtfully that when we encounter false visions of the world and imposters of truth, we fail to recognize it. And so we start to appropriate what claims to be truth into our lives and we find that it doesn't lead to godliness. Instead, it leads to distancing ourselves from God. It leads to idolatry. It leads to just simply living for ourselves. But even from Paul's identification of himself, we understand that the knowledge of the truth will lead us to the kind of godliness that makes us a slave to God and his kingdom rather than a slave to sin. And so we must, if we want to be godly people, work hard to grow in our knowledge of the truth. Now, some of us like to learn, okay? Some of us hate learning, okay? Some of us like to read. Some of us hate to read. And there's no virtue in either one, probably. Someone who just likes to learn and doesn't do anything with it isn't doing much good. But neither is the one who just doesn't learn anything, right? 
So we have to work hard to be people who develop in us that muscle and that skill by God's grace to be learning curious people, to be asking questions. Questions like, where do I fit in God's story? Okay, this event is happening in my life. Is there a script in the Bible that tells me how to navigate this situation? What does my slavery to God demand of me in this moment? And does the cost of following God, where I lose out on the rewards of the world, matter? How do I proceed forward as a Christian wherever my feet are planted? Because as we'll find in this letter, Paul wants to encourage the kind of Christian and the kind of churches who do not divide between the secular and the sacred worlds, but say, I take the sacred with me wherever I go, because this is God's world. I'm God's slave, and he has sent me as his ambassador. And so I ought to live out the script of scriptures in the drama of my life wherever I am. How do we do this as a church? Well, there are a few ways that we try to do this formally. One is through the preaching of the word on Sunday mornings. We spend a significant amount of time studying the Bible in a way that's just totally bizarre, probably for any you know, random person who walks into the room. To hear one guy talk for 30 to 60 minutes, depending on the Sunday, from a book that is ancient from a letter written like 2000 years ago just doesn't make a lot of sense. But we have to say, this is God's word for us. He's instructed us to grow in knowledge that leads to godliness. And this is one of the primary ways that the Christian church has done it through the centuries. So we gather here on Sunday and we make the preaching of God's word a primary feature of our worship gatherings. We also do this in our weekly Bible studies. Right now we have one that meets at one o'clock on Fridays and we sit around the table and we read a passage of scripture and then we talk about it. We want to grow in knowledge of the truth and we believe that the truth is found in God's word. We do this through various means, through our Bible classes, through our podcast episodes, through the songs that we sing. We want our minds and our hearts to be filled with truth. But we also recognize that our gospel mission and our gospel ministry can't only take place within the walls of this church. And so incumbent on each of us is the responsibility to engage in a growing knowledge of the truth in our daily lives. So fathers, husbands, this falls on you primarily to lead your family in the teaching of God's word. It doesn't have to be a sermon length exposition in your family devotions each night, but simply reading a text of scripture and talking about it, praying through it, reflecting on it. This will require something of you, especially if you haven't been in the practice of leading your wife, leading your family in daily devotions and daily reading and prayer. 
But just as our election follows in the long line of the electing grace of God's people all the way back to Israel, so does our responsibility to grow in the knowledge of God and his truth. And we see all the way back then these instructions for fathers to share with your children, to speak the truth to them so that when they ask, they will know. So husbands, fathers, if you would like a resource for this. We will get to you a little book that just has a paragraph about every chapter in the Bible. And so instead of feeling like you have to buy a commentary and reading the whole thing before you can say something intelligent about the Bible, you can spend two minutes skimming a paragraph, you can read the Bible, and you can have something substantive to talk about. So our growing in the knowledge of the truth does take place here formally, but it's got to take place at home. And that starts with dad. That starts with husband. But then we also incorporate into that growing knowledge in our daily lives, our relationships with believers. Whether they're part of this church or another church, we ought to have it as a normal part of our life, sitting down and reading the Bible together, talking to each other and having the kind of conversations that import biblical truth so that our advice sounds different than our friends' unbelieving co-workers' advice when they're facing a particular challenge. We have to work at this. We have to grow at this because the conversations we hear every day, the things that are modeled in our media, in television shows, have nothing to do with biblical truth and wisdom. So let's be the people who say we're God's slaves and we want to know his truth and we want to be changed by it. So in our vision for gospel ministry that we're catching here from Paul, there's a focus on the faith of God's elect that has at its aim the increasing knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. But then Paul builds on this and he provides a motivation for that gospel ministry. And that is our unwavering hope in God for eternal life. So Paul writes in verse three, that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect, for the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the life of God's elect, based on or rooted in, in verse two, the hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie promised before time began. The motivation for our gospel ministry is the hope that we have in God for eternal life. This is nothing new to us as we've just finished studying 1 Corinthians. And as we concluded in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul made the point that his whole ministry and the entirety of the Christian life only makes sense if there's life to come if there's a resurrection. And here again, Paul is rooting his ministry and our Christian life in the hope of eternal life. Now this idea of eternal life is really motivating. Read a history book, watch a movie, and there are people throughout history who have gone on expensive life-giving expeditions to find the fountain of youth. There are millionaires who have spent a lot of money trying to figure out how to freeze their body so that they'll come back to life. This hope of eternal life hits at something deep within us that's really, really motivating. And that goes all the way back to the garden. 
Adam and Eve were going to be motivated to continue to try to grasp at deity to replace God by grasping at immortality. God kicked them out of the garden for that. Immortality is off limits by ourselves. But through Christ, we have the hope of immortality. And that's a motivating, life-driving, all-encompassing hope. But we've got to get it in the right place. It's got to come from God himself. Why does Paul emphasize that this hope of eternal life was promised by God who cannot lie before time began? Well, he emphasizes that it's promised by a God, the God who cannot lie, because other deities in that time promised life. They pose as the originators of life. And even now in our modern day, we can chase after idols of various kinds, whether that's science or magic or some other thing that might promise eternal life. They lie. They can't do it. They, might, they can't make good on it. Okay? It's untenable. But God who doesn't lie, the unlying God, the always truthful God made the promise. Okay, do we have to just accept that God is unlined? How do we know that he has both the authority and the ability to provide this eternal life? That's what the next phrase is for. He promised it before time began. Time is the agent in which we experience death, isn't it? If something's around for long enough, it's going to die. While time doesn't cause death in that way, that's philosophically, that doesn't make sense. But as we pass through time, time kills us. We get older, we get decrepit, and we die. We can't escape it because we can't stop time. But if there's a God who existed before time and perhaps we can think of as the originator of time, the author of time. If that kind of God makes a promise for life, that's the kind of God who has the authority and the ability to make good on that promise. No other God, no other power that's restricted by time can do this. So our motivation for gospel ministry is one that's really not in just eternal life itself, but in the author of life. And that author promises to give us that life as we pursue him. Now we have to be careful because we could read a verse like this and say, I have motivation for gospel ministry. It's eternal life. But if I'm a Christian and I'm guaranteed eternal life, why do I need to do anything? give you two reasons why this should still motivate you. First, it's because eternal life is not only, it's not exclusively a future reality. It's a present reality now. Now, it's kind of hard for us to think about this sometimes, but we sing about it. So we talk about being raised to fullness of life. Okay, it's easier to sing about than to comprehend, but eternal life has broken in now. Yes, we will pass through the portal of death unless Christ returns first, but eternal life has broken into the present. We begin our eternal life with God now because we've been raised from eternal death. 
And so if we are to engage in spiritual flourishing, in spiritual vitality, which is nothing less than life, we ought to be motivated to be on mission for God and align our interests and our agenda with his. It is foolish to say, I've secured eternal life by praying a prayer and now I can do what I want. You don't have life because you're disconnecting from God's mission and God's agenda and God is the author of life. And if we don't track with him, we have no guarantee that we'll experience his gift of life in the end. So reason number one is that there's already an inbreaking of eternal life that we're participating in now, despite the fact that we'll go through the portal of death and that life that we participate in aligns us to God's agenda. The second reason is that eternal life also inbreaks into the present in physical, tangible ways. So we, we, we talk about the first inbreaking as a spiritual life. We've been raised from the dead. We're connected to God. We're aligned with him. But then there's also the temporary inbreaking of eternal life in physical, tangible ways as the fruit of the spirit, the God of life is expressed in our lives. So we read about this throughout the Old Testament. A word fitly spoken gives life. The Proverbs talk about actions that will bring forth the fruit of the tree of life. And so we understand that even though Adam and Eve were denied partaking of that fruit, we're welcomed to, to get a sniff of it, to have a taste. As we obey God and through his spirit, new life comes. So as we're motivated to speak words of gospel ministry, it, it inbreaks eternal life as dead souls come to life, but it also brings healing to the nations. It brings healing to our hearts. It brings healing to our relationships. As we allow the gospel to transform the way we speak with, interact with, and relate to one another. And so this motivation has a far distant future reality, but it also has a very present reality. If in your life you feel dead, I would suggest that in part it's because you're not on gospel ministry. You're not aligning your agenda with God's life because that is where we will experience his life in the present when we have him at the center of our lives. Now, it's very true that we will go through hard things. It's very true that we will experience the pain and suffering of the broken world. But as we look at the life of Christ and the disciples and we read of Christians for the last 2,000 years who faced martyrdom and suffering and persecution far worse than we ever have, there's a life that's evident there despite the physical death that they navigate. So I think that as we set out on God's mission, increasing and cultivating our faith and increasing our knowledge as we live it out in godliness, we will experience genuine life regardless of what hits us. So the vision for gospel ministry. First, there's the focus of the faith of God's elect. Then that's narrowed down into an aim of increasing the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness it's undergirded by this motivation of our unwavering hope in God for eternal life, both in the future and in the present. 
But then Paul gives us the means of this gospel ministry or the way that it's supposed to work itself out primarily. And that's through the verbal proclamation of the gospel. So Paul has told us there's this hope that was promised before time that was sort of hidden away. But then in verse three, in his own time, that is God's own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God, our savior. So the way that this hope is shared, is given out, is through the preaching, the apostolic testimony of life in Christ, repentance from sin, belief in Jesus. It happens by speaking it. So Paul says that he was entrusted with this responsibility by the command of God, our Savior. Situationally, he's now entrusting Titus with the command to speak the gospel for the transformation of God's people. We have received the same letter that Titus received, and therefore we too are being entrusted with the same command to proclaim the gospel for the transformation of the lives of God's people in his assembly. This then is very similar to that great commission. It was originally given to the apostles. They're to teach others also, and they're to teach them to do the same thing. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. I was entrusted to proclaim the gospel. I'm entrusting you to proclaim the gospel. And now by God's providential word, we too are entrusted to preach the gospel. So as we consider our responsibility to preach the gospel as the primary means of fulfilling this gospel vision, we must remember that our mission as a church must have as its focus the verbal proclamation of the gospel. I mentioned at the start that there's a reason why charities and nonprofits in a workplace seem like they can offer anything a church can, and that's because churches can tend to stop offering the gospel. The unique message of the church gets lost sometimes as we pursue good things, such as hospitality ministries, sometimes because we are derailed by our culture's idea of virtue and truth. But we must steadfastly be committed to proclaiming the gospel. That's our mission. That's what we want to talk about most. And as that gospel transforms us, we add on to our mission these transforming works of the gospel, doing good deeds, loving others, helping those who are in distress. But that all flows out of the gospel. This must remain the main message of our church, the gospel for faith, for knowledge, for godliness, for harmony with God. But then... If we are indeed entrusted with this commission of verbally proclaiming the gospel, we must seek to establish this assembly in such a way that we, like Paul to Titus, to Titus to Christians, to Christians to us, pass forward that commission to preach the gospel. We must position ourselves in such a way that the gospel proclaiming ministry of this church outlives each of us. If we start to think of the ministry of this church only in terms of what will happen in your lifetime and my lifetime, we are approaching gospel ministry in a really short-sighted way. 50 years ago, 
54 years ago, this church was started as a small country church in a city of about 30,000 people. There were only fields around here. Fast forward to now. We're in a city of 60,000 plus because now the cities blend together. It's grown up around us. There's a whole different demographic in our city than there was 50 years ago. So if we can think about that change and then fast forward 50 years to when most of us will be dead, except for the children among us, the context for ministry is going to be far different than it is now. And if we shape the life of our church in our gospel ministry in anything other than the enduring time, all time encompassing message of the gospel, if we put something else there that's bound by time, we're going to lose it. And we're going to set ourselves up to be a church that can just be turned into a nonprofit. Instead, we have to root ourselves in the message of the gospel and have that as the focus of our ministry so that we can hand this assembly off to the generations that come after us and they can carry on the gospel proclaiming ministry that Christ started, Paul carried on and handed to Titus. In direct application, this is what we're trying to do as we seek to reposition ourselves in another location. We understand that ministry happens within the world's value system with money and buildings and location. And so we must establish ourselves in a location that will last for another 50 years, that will outgrow us where we can die and life can still thrive. This gospel driving forward ministry and this gospel driving forward move is going to take a lot of work and commitment from this assembly. It's not going to be easy. We also can't deceive ourselves into thinking that because we may move into a building that's much more visible and welcoming, that that's what will further gospel ministry alone. It's not. It's verbally proclaiming the message of the gospel and then allowing that message to transform our lives and relationships. So we strategize and plan, but we keep at the forefront the proclamation of the gospel. So let's pick up on Paul's vision for gospel ministry. Let's have as our focus the faith of God's elect and the, the increasing knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness as we await the hope of eternal life, as we await Christ's return, so that throughout the ages, for however long we await Christ's return, the gospel will be proclaimed and this assembly and each of us will be part of God's mission on this planet.